Y'all, my guests, guests, you hear how many S's there were on that? My guests are on fire lately. <laughs> I am so pumped. I really am. Like, I am loving, 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 loving the last few months of interviews. And I have to give a special shout out to my assistant, who I don't even really have an assistant, but her name is Allison. You know who you are. She helps me get guests on the podcast, and she has worked so hard over the past few months. And so I'm giving her a shout out, just like kids do on YouTube. <laughs> so I love you, Allison. Thank you for this. But today, this is one of the guests that um, Allison connected me with, Dr. Judd Brewer. And look, if you guys listen to any episode in the last two months, I think this one is going to be the most aha type moment for you. I think it's going to be the most helpful for your day-to-day life for, for change. And so I really don't want you to miss it. So bookmark it if you can't listen to it now. Um, come back to it. But this is a must listen. So Dr. Judd Brewer, he's a psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions. So he's known as Dr. Judd, and he is a thought leader in the science of self-mastery. Okay, so self-mastery. Yes, we all care about that. We want to have control and mastery of ourselves. This is the things that we care about, right? Yes, yes, for sure. So we talk about food. We talk about emotional eating. We talk about addictions. We talk about smoking. We talk about anything in any way you want to change your habits and how you do it. I love the way he breaks it down. That's what is the magic about his work and this conversation. So don't, don't miss it. He has a new book coming out, Unwinding Anxiety, March 9th, it'll be out. So if you hear this before March 9th, 2021, buy it. If you hear it after March 9th, buy it. (laughs) It's going to change your life. Additionally, he has developed four digital therapeutic programs, all smartphone, app-based, and you can read about those in the show notes. But you can learn more about Dr. Judd Brewer at drjudd1d.com and follow him on Instagram. I'll post the link to that and just enjoy this episode. It was awesome. And we're going to schedule a time for him to come back in a couple months because I had so many more questions, (laughs) so much more to talk about. So enjoy this episode and get on with your habit changing. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I have Dr. Judd Brewer here. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So good to talk to you. I love everything that you're about. I love talking about anxiety about habits and about how we can get a hold of ourselves you are into the science of self-mastery so talk in my language I love it I love it so as a jumping off point how did you become interested in the concept of self-mastery 
Well, let's just say I had no idea how my own mind worked. I had no mastery over my own self. And I was kind of exhausted. You know, I, I made it, you know, through high school doing a bunch of different things that I just loved doing, got into college, and then, you know, kind of used this grit, will force based uh, approach somewhat to get through college. A lot of it was driven by just being curious about things. Uh, but then started to realize that that <laughs> that's kind of exhausting. <laughs> Wait, you can't strong arm everything because that's what like my husband has said. Meredith Atwood forcing her way through life since 1979. Like that's what she that's what he tells me. So you can't do so, that forever. <laughs> no, you you and I are kindred souls. I remember being on a silent meditation retreat, like this month long retreat, and I think the teachers were so frustrated with me with my willpower based approach. They said. I remember one saying to me, you know, your path to enlightenment is going to be through striving, <laughs> which is, of course, the opposite of what meditation is. But she's that's like, I don't know, weird. you know, that's all you do is strive. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But I like that, though. At least she kind of accepted it. Did you feel good when she said that? You said, well, you're finally getting it. <laughs> you know, I still didn't know what she was talking about. So I was like, okay, I can like, strive. what enlightenment? I'm enlightened. Oh, that's funny. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so how was a monthly, you said a month long? I mean, I feel like we need to go down a rabbit hole with that. How, how did that go for someone like you? <laughs> well, backing up a little bit, you know, when I was in medical school, I went on my first seven day silent meditation retreat and the strong arm approach lasted about three days where I found myself uncontrollably crying on the shoulder of the retreat manager. No kidding. Oh, no. As a, you know, I was like, I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? <laughs> right. That's so, so, that's what I feel like it would happen to me. Cause I'm the same way. I mean, I went to law school. I, I left the legal profession cause it's awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I strongly on my way through life, but same thing. It's like, I can't sit here and listen to my own thoughts. Like you've got to be crazy. I'm just going to go bake a cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 okay so, that, so how did you get how did you get there how did you get to this this path where you wanted to figure it out you were tired you were exhausted like what triggered the turnover that like I can't do this anymore yeah it was I remember in medical school maybe I was just thick-headed and you know I'm gonna do this until I can figure it out so I would I remember meditating during more boring medical school lectures and found that that was more helpful than, you know, whatever was less helpful. <laughs> and so there was, you know, somewhere in there, I started to get a glimpse that I could work with my mind in a way that was different than the strong arm willpower approach. And that really fascinated me, you know, mm -hmm. and I spent, you know, eight years of my MD PhD program, just practicing meditation myself personally, you know, starting to go on longer and longer retreats. And by the time I started residency training, I remember thinking that I really wanted to dedicate my life to studying this mindfulness stuff because, wow, it seems kind of helpful for me. <laughs> and I, in particular, around addictions, this is where the habit piece comes in. A lot of my patients with addictions, boy, they're their own worst enemies often where they beat themselves up, they judge themselves, yes. And, you know, society is not great at 
being kind to people with addictions, you know, thinking yeah. there's some willpower issue there as well. It's not a willpower issue, folks. My patients try their hardest. And if that's not, you know, don't beat them right. up for, for, you know, for having an addiction, please. Um, they are people with addictions and, and they really struggle. So I started thinking, wow, can I actually study this stuff? You know, this mindfulness, my patients were actually talking the same language as the Buddhist psychologists that I was, you know, starting to learn the philosophy around. And I was thinking, wow, can I study this? It really was not studied at all, especially in the addiction field when I was in residency. So it was new territory. I remember I was in residency at Yale and there was this guy saying that it was gonna kill my career if I, if I moved in that direction. Yeah, oh and so I, I remember thinking I'd rather, I'd rather fail at something that I really believe in or want to study as a scientist, you know, whether it works or not, that's what the scientists do is study to see whether something works or not. And just making this commitment that I was gonna go for it, jump in with both feet and figure out how to swim uh, while I was in the water. Well, I heard you say MD, PhD. So what is your PhD in? It's actually an immunology. I was studying oh, okay. why we get sick when we get stressed. Okay. All right. So a couple of things I want to, I think how you and I connected is because on the addiction point, because mm -hmm. I'm five years sober. Um, mm -hmm. I still love pizza. <laughs> I would smoke a pack of camels right now. If I knew, you know, if I just decided that my life didn't matter anymore, like I will attach to whatever and it will become my newest addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on that is that, like in where mindfulness comes into like a situation like me. So drank really heavy, ate, you know, ate really heavy as a kid, ate heavy as a teenager. When I found booze, I was like, oh no, this is my thing. Mm -hmm. And did that really heavy for 20 years. Um, somewhere in between found exercise, started doing that to excess, um, mm -hmm. quit drinking, continued to do exercise to excess. Now I do what I, I do podcast to excess. I'll put out like six a week. Um, it doesn't even matter. Um, so what do you do with someone like me? <laughs> a, and then I definitely want to talk about emotional eating because I know that's a large pinpoint for my audience too. So what do you do with me? <laughs> Cause this is about me. <laughs> and then let's talk about eating. I don't want to lose the eating thing. Yes. So I, the first place I start with, say, I'm not going to say, well, let, let me say with anybody in my clinic, but I'm not suggesting, you know, you need to come to my clinic. <laughs> Maybe uh, I but <laughs> I, what I realized myself was I didn't know how my mind worked. And what I've realized for a lot of my patients is that they don't know how their minds work. And so it starts there. Maybe I can give a very simple, short example, and this will actually lead us into the eating thing. Okay, great. So I remember a patient who actually came in because he was anxious. He was just referred for anxiety. And when he came into my office, he looked pretty anxious, you know, check. Long story short, he had full-blown panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And when I took more of his history, I we started to see this pattern, especially say around driving. So he would get on the highway, he'd have this thought that he was going to get, you know, get in an accident. And these thoughts were so distressing that he started avoiding driving on the highway. And he didn't know how to work with that. He didn't even know how his own mind works. So the first thing we did was we mapped out this very basic process. So anybody, so for you or anyone, first thing I would say is map out these habit loops. We all form these loops and they can be helpful ones like tying our shoes or they can be unhelpful ones like avoiding driving on the highway or drinking. So with this gentleman, 
what I did is I just pulled out a piece of paper. Basic habit loop is formed with three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, or from a neuroscience standpoint, a reward. And so his trigger was these thoughts. His behavior was avoiding driving on the highway. And then the result or the reward was that he didn't have, he could avoid those thoughts and he could avoid panic attacks. Okay. Of course, this was also leading to adverse consequences. You know, he's having, even driving the local roads to get to my office was a problem. Oh, and he was 180 pounds overweight. Okay. Well, of course he was. So, like, of course. So, yeah. So I send him home and this is going to lead us into the eating piece. I send him home and I said, okay, map out your habits loops. We have this app that, um, called Unwinding Anxiety, same name as the book, that I was starting to study in my lab at, at Brown University to see how well it worked. And so I gave him, you know, version of, I just had him download the app and said, you know, try this out, map out your habit loops. He came back two weeks later and he, he actually, I think I remember him walking into the office, you know, look with a smile on his face or something like that, looking very different than the first time he came to see me. And the first thing he said to me was, hey doc, I lost 14 pounds. Wow. What? And I, so <laughs> I, I must've given him this, huh? <laughs> because I don't remember even talking to him about weight loss. I was going to address that later. Right. I wanted to start with anxiety. And he said, doc, I was mapping out my habit loops. And I realized anxiety leaded, led me to stress eat and it wasn't actually very rewarding. So I stopped doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> over the course of the next year, he went on to lose over a hundred pounds. He's still, I still see him in my clinic. He's still going strong. And he wow. said, you know, I saw him maybe two weeks ago and he said, you know, doc, I just want to really highlight, you know, really approach, I, I appreciate this approach because it's effortless. You know, it's, it's about, you know, the, how rewarding something is versus the willpower. And he said, yes. you know, every time I do this, I see this. And so that's the piece that's really key and something that, that my lab has studies that we've even incorporated. We have this eat right now app that we've studied as well where the idea is when you bring awareness in, our brains update the reward value of a certain behavior. And that is the way to change habits. It's not through willpower. It's, it's really the oldest and the strongest learning process in our brain. The prefrontal cortex, if there is such a thing as willpower, we don't need to go there, uh, but let's assume that there is. Uh, it's the youngest and weakest part of the brain. It's the first sure. part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed. So of course it's going to be challenging for anyone to, you know, diet or to stop smoking or to stop drinking or whatever, if they just try willpower. Yeah. So I want to ask you this question and you may say like, you missed the whole point, but I've noticed like in myself and in my clients, there's a bit of strong arming, a bit of the grit that, you know, from your life and my life. I feel that is required at the beginning. Like you gotta just have something like to get over the hump of booze, like not drinking for, to quit drinking. Like it's, you got a strong arm, something, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like before you can get the reward, because like for me, if I'm binging on ice cream for two weeks, like I have to go off the sugar for three days before I'm like, oh, there's the reward. I'm sleeping. Yeah. I don't feel like crap. So how does this principle um, of awareness and that being the award, reward start from out of the gate. Like what, yes. how do you apply that? So there are two elements here. Our brains, they develop this reward hierarchy. It's part of brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. The details are relevant. People can read the details in the book if they're interested. But the idea is that our brain's always comparing two things. You know, it's like 
present it, you know, if you present your kids broccoli and cake at dinner at the same time, you know, their brain's already made up its mind. <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to eat the cake. So we have this reward hierarchy and what we can do is we can tap into it two ways. One is to help us see how unrewarding the current behavior is and also how rewarding the other behavior is, which is often just not doing the behavior. So I agree with you. It's helpful to get a couple of days of sobriety or whatever under one's belt to say, oh yeah, this feels good. I'm thinking of one of my patients who every day she reflects, she's now been sober over a year after decades and decades of drinking, every day, one of her practices is to wake up, notice what it feels like right now to be sober, mm -hmm. and then yes. remember back to what it was like when she would be drinking a lot. So she gets both of those elements. But before somebody gets, say, days of eating sobriety or drinking sobriety or smoking sobriety, what we can actually do is tap into it right then. I'll use an example of smoking and eating because we've actually studied this in my lab. So what I have people do when they smoke, we, we actually have an app for smoking called Craving They Quit. And what we have this craving tool in it where we have them uh, go through the process of smoking and pay very, very, very careful attention as they do it. And they realize that smoking tastes like crap, right? <laughs> so, Which booze does too, by the way. Like if you really boil booze really down to it, it tastes like garbage. <laughs> so, right. And, and it's harder, you know, when somebody's, when somebody's drinking to excess, it's, you know, when they're not, they can't pay attention when it's harder to pay attention, it's even harder to tap into that. So let's use eating as another example, because you don't have to smoke to survive, but we all do have to, you know, keep our calories in it to some level. Uh, we have people pay attention as they overeat or as they eat junk food, you know, and what they do is start to see very, very clearly how unrewarding it is when they do those behaviors. In fact, in one study that we're, uh, we've just submitted for publication, the, we found that it only takes 10 to 15 times of people doing this, this very careful mindfulness exercise for that reward value to drop below zero when wow. they overeat or when they eat junk food. So it's not like you have to do this for 20 years. Even if somebody has been overeating for 20 years, that reward value can change pretty quickly in their brain. And it's, you know, it makes sense because our brains have to adapt uh, to right. ongoing changes in, in the environment. So like the food process, you would have them sit down, be mindful from the, out of the gate, right? With mm -hmm. like, if I sat down with a pizza and ice cream, like I have ever done that ever, right? <laughs> um, I would start before I had my first bite and that would be like the cue, right? And I would mm -hmm. follow the mindfulness through because you frequently overeat and then you're like, oh my God, then it's like you wake up and you're like, why did I do that? So it's, it's got to start earlier. Yes, absolutely. And it can happen, you know, it can start at the beginning or it even can start in the middle. And one of the simple practices I have people do is ask themselves, you know, basically how little is enough? Like compare the reward value of this bite to the previous bite, right? And there's going to be this pleasure plateau where even if we're hungry, you know, that hunger is, start gonna, is going to start to slack off. And we also have to do this, you know, we can't just scarf a bunch of pizza down you know, we've got to you know, kind of let it settle into our system. And it can take a couple yeah. of minutes, but it doesn't take a long time. And then we can ask, you know, pizza, chocolate, ice cream, whatever. Is this bite as rewarding as the last, as the last bite? And what well, tons of people report is, oh, they can, they can find that, that pleasure plateau. And then when they stop there, they feel better because they're right. not stuffed. They don't feel guilty. 
all of those things. And they've still gotten to enjoy the ice cream, the chocolate or whatever it was. I did this exercise once, okay. once Dr. Brewer. <laughs> and I got so mad because <laughs> I realized that it takes two bites of ice cream for me to be like, okay, that was good. Like it was two bites before like the pleasure dipped off. And I was like, this is a lie. I, it, it's like something in my brain slammed shut. Cause I was like, you have eaten, you know, gallons of ice cream over your life. You have eaten gal, you know, tons of pizzas and you have a two bite pleasure principle. I remember doing this. It was like two years ago. And I thought, and then my, my, my brain slammed shut. And so this is really helpful to hear again, because it's reminding me, um, cause I have very specific fitness goals and, and wait, you know, like I know what I'm doing, I have a plan. And so this is very helpful to hear again, even though I totally stuck my head in the sand on it the first time. <laughs> well, I'm glad you bring it forward because our, our brains don't want to see the truth, especially yeah. when they're, when it's, we have these old habits. So one thing about habit change is that the change itself is scary until we're used to it. Right. So just like my patient, actually, uh, the one that I described with anxiety, you know, the guy that lost hundred pounds, he went on to go from not driving on the highway to literally becoming an Uber driver, not kidding. <laughs> and so what, but what he said, he came into my office one day and he said, doc, you know, I've been, he'd been having anxiety for constantly for 30 years. And so he said, doc, I'm having these times where I'm actually calm and peaceful. And it, I'm kind of anxious that I'm not anxious because mm you know, it's different. And so he had to real, and then he, I sent him home to work with that to, to just see what's it like for something to be different, which can be scary to our brains because our brains are on the lookout, you know, if, oh, this is different. There might be danger here. We have to see that there's not danger there. Right. And when there's not danger there, we just, then we become habituated to the non-danger and then we're comfortable with it, but we have to be comfortable with the discomfort of change before we can actually change. You know, it's like yeah. moving into our growth zone rather than our panic zone. One of the things I came across was on Dr. Nicole LaPera's page and she, it was, and I'm paraphrasing, but something about if you learn to love in chaos. So if you grew up in a family of chaos, being in a healthy relationship may feel wrong. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I thought about how much I invite chaos. Like my, I have a relatively boring life. I have a great calm husband and I'm, you know, I'll just be like, I think I need to throw a grenade into this because things are really calm and good, you know? Um, but learning that calm is not scary has been my journey. Like, oh, this mm. is actually okay. This is love. This is good. <laughs> um, and then the idea, what, I want to go back to presenting the reward, like, you know, showing the reward when you start out on, on this process. Is this why rock bottom is so popular? Because people get to the rock bottom and they're like, oh, this is really bad. So anything's better than this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you say popular. I would say common because I'm not okay. sure people are like, I want to get to rock bottom first. No, I'm going to sure you. act like it. We sure yeah, see, we sure know, play like we're getting there fast. <laughs> yeah. So this there's actually origins of this way back in the teachings of the of the Buddha. Even there is, you know, this Pali canon, the canonical teachings. There's this phrase about exploring gratification to its end. And he says, it's only when I explore gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. And the idea there is that if we don't see how ungratifying her or how unrewarding a behavior is, we're gonna keep doing it. And so mm. we really have, for some of us, it really is down to that end. For many of us, 
it doesn't have to be rock bottom, which is great. You know, it's not like we, we, any, any moment we can actually pay attention and ask, you know, is this, is this bite better than the last one? And there's, there's this mini rock bottom or micro rock bottom, but it, it, it portrays the process just in a way that doesn't have to be so, so big that it's in our face that we can't ignore it anymore. If we pay attention, we don't have to have big things happen that we can't ignore because we're paying attention. Right. And that, that's, that's so it, it is really being present. And I almost feel like present is the new self-care. It's like, Oh, do we have to talk about being present? Do, like, do we have to talk about self-care, but really being in today and paying attention, that's the game changer because it's the autopilot that we end up doing stupid stuff and we end up mm -hmm. eating, t you know, two pints of ice cream. Um, so how does being present impact your work around anxiety. So um, is anxiety partly from not being present? Is it being hyper-present? Like what, ex how does that, those tie together? So there is, it's probably helpful to kind of know how our survival mechanisms work in the brain. You know, that three-part process is also there around avoiding danger. So you can think of approaching rewarding things like getting calories to survive you know, our brains have to remember where the food is. In modern day, everybody has a refrigerator, so it's not as critical, but it's still there, that mechanism. That same mechanism plays a role in what's called negative reinforcement, where we can learn from things that scare us so that we avoid them in the future, okay? So, you know, if we step out into the streets and see that a bus is barreling down at us, we, we relearn that we should stop looking at our phones when we're crossing the street or whatever it is, you know, those weapons of mass distraction, they are definitely going to be a weapon of mass extinction if we, <laughs> if we don't, True. if we're not careful. So that process is at play and it helps us learn through fear. Fear is helpful, but when fear is coupled with uncertainty, we get anxiety and there's tons of uncertainty. We have to learn to be comfortable with that discomfort of uncertainty. But if we don't know that, if we don't know how our brains work, our predictive brains, that prefrontal cortex is actually evolved to help us predict the future based on past experience. When it doesn't have accurate information, it's gonna start doing all these crazy what if scenarios. What if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And it turns out, this is more suffering on my own part, when I was struggling to help my own clinic patients with their anxiety, so I studied habit loops, you know, we'd done great. We'd found some really remarkable results with our studies. Like we'd studied um, the mindful smoking. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We studied uh -huh. this eat right now app. We got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. This was a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF. So we'd found all these things with habits and somebody in our, in our eating program said, Hey, I just like my patient said, you know, I eat a lot as a, as a triggered or triggered by anxiety. Can you make an anxiety program? And I was thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm a physician. I prescribe medications for anxiety. And then, you know, the, the hit rate for medications, there's this, uh, you, you have to basically treat five patients before one significantly benefits because they're not that great. Uh, mm -hmm. For some people, they're good for, you know, 80% of the others, not so much. So I started looking at the literature and I found this work of this guy, Tomic Thomas Borkovec. So back in the 80s, when Prozac was being herald heralded as this miracle drug, he was studying anxiety and worry. And he found that anxiety can actually be driven as a habit. And I, my eyes popped out of my Whoa. head. And when I put them back in my head, I was thinking, oh, 
I know something about habits. <gasps> Can we apply this to anxiety? And so ding, we ding, developed. Ding, ding. Yeah. So I said, wow. okay, of course, you know, as a researcher, I wanted to study this. And so we developed this unwinding anxiety app and started studying it. Long story short, ready for this? 57% reduction in a study we did with anxious physicians. So clinically validated anxiety scores, 57% reduction. Wow. Also, they reduced a bunch of burnout measures too, just as a side benefit because they were learning how to work with their minds. We did a randomized control trial. This is sponsored by the, or funded by the NIH with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction in these anxiety scores. And we could calculate that number needed to treat, you know, where with medications, it's over five with this, it was 1.6. So, wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. So anxiety, habit, who knew? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I believe you. Cause when, when I started really looking and I, I haven't gone down too far of a rabbit hole about how my brain works, but I've been doing a lot of like thought logging and figuring out how much of what I say in my brain is the same thing on repeat from the day before or that's been on the repeat since I was five years old. And yeah. the, what I have come to learn is that I have a huge bratty child inside of me. Who's like, you don't tell me what to do. You don't hold my food. It's mine. And like that runs me. I am 41 and I am run by five-year-old Meredith. Who's like, it's mine. You can't tell me what to do. Screw off. And that's what I do. It's like an all, like you're not the boss of me. Who's the boss of me? Nobody. Like officially no one is the boss of me now. Um, but learning. Did you fire the child or what did you do? I, you know, I didn't fire her because she was never allowed to talk. She, it's a, naturally I have a podcast now, right? Naturally I write books, of course, because now I talk. Um, I feel like she didn't get her child voice heard. So I let her talk, but I let her know that she's not the boss. <laughs> oh, very constructive. And you can help others through her, uh, through her voice. I love it. But it's really simple. Like to hear how my, my brain is that simple. Like it's that simple. And when I'm attuned to it, that she's running the show and she's in the kitchen, you know, that's it. And that was like, you have to be kidding me. All these years of suffering, of drinking, of, of the countless dollars spent and it's five-year-old Meredith running the show. But that's the case though, isn't it? I mean, most of us and whether you're inner child or, you know, ascribed to that or whatever, but it is our thoughts, right? That's, that's the deal. Yes. In fact, I ascribe to this so much that we created a, so in these app-based mindfulness training programs, we have, you know, 10 minute trainings a day, basically, where people go through a progressive uh, sequential training. And we, in, we include a bunch of animations that drive some of the key points home. And we actually have an animation called the screaming child. <laughs> and, yeah, when I give talks like grand rounds or whatever, I've gotten questions where people say, you know, to the point where I have to kind of preface that when I show that animation in a talk, they say, you know, aren't you supposed to take care of your children? And I'm like, this is not about, you know, not caring for our children. This is about paying attention. When the, when the kids need to be fed, we feed them. You know, when their diapers right. need to be changed, we change them. But when they're in the grocery store screaming, we don't feed them lollipops to get them to shut up because like, guess what? They just trained us to feed them lollipops when they want them. Right. You know, and that's our, right. that's all of us. We all have that inner screaming child. That's so funny. Well, if you feel like putting a t-shirt on her that says Meredith in your next uh, you know, thing, you can. She'd be holding a cookie. Um, okay. So this is, I mean, I could talk to you all day. This is so fascinating, but let's 
um, pivot to your book. You've got your second book coming out, Unwinding Anxiety, March 9th. Let's talk about what people will get from this and where they can find it. Sure. So the first part, or the second part's easy. They can find it anywhere books are sold. Wherever you buy your books. <laughs> yes. So that done. Uh, okay. The And actually, if people pre-order, I think they can get this special bonus that I put together that kind of gives a, a downloadable um kind of cheat sheet on these three steps. So, and if anyone book, is listening to this, pre-order the book. That is gold for authors. I I is. love having authors on because I like to promote. So, if it's before March 9th, I mean order it anytime, but especially important before March 9th. Okay, carry yeah, on. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. And it's really a compilation of all these, you know, years of research where I, you know, I'd been struggling myself. Oh, by the way, I had panic attacks when I was in residency. So, you know, I, I you know, there's something a little bit personal there where I can relate to this. Uh, all the research that we'd done. And then also, as I'd gone through the years of treating my clinic patients and working with our, the folks in our program. So we have a live weekly group for anybody that joins any of the apps. And so every week I'll work with people on their habits. And so what I'd started to see was that there's this pattern, this three-step process. And I've laid out the book in that manner where I'll describe the research, I'll give patient examples, and I'll give people very pragmatic tools that they can use to go through these three steps themselves. The first steps around mapping out this habit loop, just like I gave you the example with my patient, you know, the trigger was thoughts, his behavior was avoiding driving on the highway. And then the, the, the reward was that he could not get panic attacks. So mapping this out is the first step. The second step is really exploring that reward value in our brain. What am I getting from this basically? Uh, you know, how much is, you know, that extra bite actually going to get me? And then the third step gives, I call it the BBO, giving people the bigger, better offer. Mm. You, you already described this, right? Sobriety is that bigger, better offer for somebody right. who's really struggled with drinking. So there are tons of tons of practices and pragmatic examples and ways that people can start to understand and awaken their own inner bigger better offers and one that i highlight in the book that i absolutely love is curiosity because that's something that our inner children are really good at yeah and we can, so because it's internal, we don't become habituated to it. So for example, we distract ourselves from anxiety by looking at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram or whatever. Our <laughs> brains, you know, they're like, okay, I get it. Puppies give me something cuter. And so it's like puppies and kittens and then puppies, <laughs> kittens and babies, you know? And so it goes on and on and on because our brains are, they're set up to become habituated to things so that we can learn other things. Well, if it's internal, if it's curiosity, we don't become habituated to curiosity because curiosity itself is a survival mechanism. It helps us get, gather information. Wow. So okay. that's gold. So curiosity, another that I highlight is kindness, right? I Tons of patients who have self-judgmental habit loops, you know, yeah. they look in the mirror, they judge themselves, you know, and do something self-destructive often, you know, like eat more or something right. like that. Right. So it's about stepping out of those habit loops and into habit loops of kindness because kindness feels better Amazing. than ourselves up. I know, Amazing. crazy. So like the curiosity example, that would be listening to screaming Meredith, age five in my head and being like, why are you screaming? What do you need, right? I mean, is that the curiosity? 
Yes. And in particular, the what do you need as compared to the why. I actually have a, I have a, I think a chapter, a section of a chapter devoted to the why habit loop, because a lot of my patients come in, you know, oh, you're the psychiatrist, where's the couch that I'm supposed to lay down on? And how many times have you heard that? (laughs) (laughs) Way too many. And so they think it's about figuring out what was wrong in their childhood that they can then what go back and fix their childhood. You know, that's already a, a, a premise that doesn't work, but they get stuck in this why habit loop. Like, why am I anxious? Why am I this? Why am I that? It's not the why it's the what, like, what do I need right now? What's happening right now and helping them shift the focus to the present moment, because in the, whatever happened in the past caused a habit that's happening right now. And they can't change the past, but they can change the present and the present will predict the future. So if they, if they can step out of the why and into the, what, what do you need, then they can actually figure out what their needs are in those moments and meet those needs rather than perpetuate bad habits that kind of miss the mark. Oh my gosh. You're so awesome. You made it sound so simple. So everyone go forth and be healed. (laughs) The world is fine now. I mean, you make it sound so easy and it is that simple and that complicated, but thank you for doing this work because I think you really, you laid it out in a way that, that certainly hit home for me that reminded me I only need two bites of ice cream and that's it. So thank you so much for your time. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.